One of the things that you should have noticed, even as the word was read this evening, is the number of times in which Joshua, through this sermon, appealed to the people to choose. The fact remains, the fact is true, that in the Christian life, and life in general, whether Christian or no, life is about choices. Young people, you will make many choices in your life. They will impact, they will have consequences, good or bad, depending on the choices you make. You've been given parents to help guide those choices. You may not always like that direction, you may not always like that guidance, but it's there nonetheless that you might not make bad choices that will lead to ruin. Mom and dads, adults in the room, you too, you make choices. Every single day of your life, you get up, you make choices, you make determinations as to what you're going to do with your time that the Lord has given you, and of course, those consequences come as well. You are not immune just because you're older. All of us make choices. All of those choices have consequences. All of those choices result in either good or bad. Very much the case here, in this place, in this third sermon that Joshua is preaching prior to his death. He calls the people of God to choose. He calls them to choose. To, as it were, make a vow, a commitment to the God who has saved them, to the God who has rescued them, to the God who has been faithful to them, to the God who has been with them all of their days. Even as he retold the various story of redemption going all the way back prior to even Genesis chapter 12. No, indeed, They are called to choose. It's an all-or-nothing proposition, for there is no in-between. You will either choose to serve the God of heaven who has redeemed you, or you will choose not to. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot live with one foot in the kingdom of the world and one foot in the kingdom of heaven. That is to simply say that you've got both feet in the kingdom of the world. You must choose. You must choose this day, even as the people there on that plain near Shechem were called to choose. You must choose tonight, this day, who is it that you're going to serve? You're either going to serve the the idols of the world and all of its forms and fashions and ways in which it shows itself, or you are going to serve the God of heaven. You're either going to serve the idols which can do nothing for you, and cannot help you, and will never lift a finger to to rescue you, for they can't, or you will serve the God of heaven that has demonstrated his faithfulness to you through all of your years. God will not tolerate a people who say they love him, but yet profane themselves by giving to idols their affections. No, indeed, Joshua calls these people to holiness. He calls them to respond to the faithfulness of God once given as he retells it and recounts it for them once again, a holiness that demands that the the idolatry of their day be exterminated from their midst. It is indeed an all-or-nothing proposition. You cannot serve God in idols You cannot serve God in the idol of self, the Mimi God. I always like saying that. You cannot serve God in the Mimi God at the same time. You must choose. 
You must choose. Tonight you're going to be called to choose. Who are you going to serve? Young people, who are you going to serve all of your days? You can choose to serve the world, but I can tell you it will end in disaster. You can choose to serve the God of heaven and trust and place your entire confidence in Him. Yes, there will be ups and downs. Yes, there will be times of doubt. Yes, there will be times of question. Yes, there will be times of I don't know what's going on. But one thing is certain, God will never fail you. He will carry you safely as He carried Joshua safely to the very end of your days. You must choose. Maybe you're much older here this evening. You too must choose. You'll be called, you are called to choose the God of heaven or everything else. So this evening I want to show you that through a review of the history of the covenant, you are forced to make a choice. Either you will this day determine to serve the Lord or you will determine to serve idols in all of its forms and fashions. And I'm going to present some of those tonight. And I tell you now, some of them may not be very comfortable I'm always amazed in the providence of God and the things that I hear. I'm going to show you this evening through a review of the history of the covenant that you are forced to make a choice. Either you will this day, this evening, determine to serve the Lord or you will determine to serve idols. You will either this night determine, parents, to serve the Lord as Joshua did and lead your family in the things of the Lord or you will not. There is no in-between. You will either this day, single people, choose to serve the Lord and walk with Him faithfully in whatever He calls you to do, or you will not. You will choose something. There is no neutrality here. A no choosing is a choice. You will either choose the God of heaven, or you will choose whatever else. That else will fail abysmally, tragically. Two points as we consider the entirety of this final chapter, a chapter that is in some sense sad and glad, joyful and remorseful. It's got all of the emotion in it. Two points. First, we'll consider a covenant review. That's obvious from the text. It's precisely what happens in the early stages of the sermon that Joshua preaches. And then we will see the covenant renewal. Covenant review covenant renewal as outlined in this chapter, the 24th chapter of the book of Joshua. Let's first consider this review that we have heard before. It's repeated again. This is the third sermon that Joshua preaches to the people. But this sermon is much different than the other two because the urgency of the matter is great. Why, you might ask, is it so great? Because it's the final sermon he will preach to the people. It's the final time in which he will have opportunity to stand before the people that he loves and has loved for so long. The people that he's known as an apprentice under Moses, a people that he has learned from and they from him and as he has sought to guide and direct and, and shepherd and tend to and deal with all of their murmuring and complaining and their struggles and their gripes as well as the good things and Everything in between. This is the last time that he has opportunity to communicate to them a message. And he chooses to do a review. For he could have said anything. 
here. He could have communicated to them anything he wished. But he chooses to tell them, to remind them who their God is. Not what he has done. It is interesting in the language, especially in the first 13 verses of the language, as you read it, it's almost as though Joshua himself is not even speaking. Do you note that? The number of times in which it sounds like the Lord just ripped the pen right out of Joshua's hand or whoever wrote it or took the words right out of Joshua's mouth and they were hearing from the tabernacle, which wasn't all that far. They could hear the voice of God. It's striking there in those first 13 verses. Some examples. Verse 6, then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. Joshua didn't do that. Continuing. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. Verse 7, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what? What? I did. Joshua didn't do that. And it goes on like this. This personal pronoun continually shows itself. Who's speaking here? This is the God of heaven. It's as though he just takes all the words right out of Joshua's mouth. And he is speaking to the people. Well, the setting, I got a little ahead of myself, got excited. As I mentioned, this is indeed the third sermon that Joshua preaches prior to his death. The matter is imminent, vital to the success of the people of God of old. If you look at verse 29, we notice there that the, 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 basically the, the, um, the obituary of Joshua. It comes back up again in Judges, in case you're wondering, Judges chapter 2, we see it again, but the fact remains here is the end of this servant of the Lord, and he determines to preach a sermon in the location given to us in the early stages of the, of the, uh, of the chapter. Where is it that he's preaching, and why does that even matter? I don't think anybody's going to care in the days to come, in the years to come, that sermons were preached in Evansville, Indiana, in Providence Presbyterian Church, Maybe Joshua thought the same thing when he was preaching his sermon at Shechem. But because I love biblical theology, because of the reality of this location, there's something significant about it. This may not mean anything to you, but the significance of this location cannot be missed. The covenant that was clearly articulated to Abraham in the place where he first pitched his tent when he came into Canaan in Genesis chapter 12 is in fact this place. In other words, the sermon isn't just words, but it's also visual for them. They see the sermon because they're standing in the very place in which their father Abraham received the covenant promise of the God who has rescued them. And so this place carries with it substantial significance for the people. The examples he gives in the storyline that is mentioned here beginning with really a retelling of the various events. What is that storyline? Well, it's Abraham lived among a family of idolaters. You have to go back to Genesis chapter 11. You see where God called Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldeans. His father was an idolater. He lived among people that were pagan, that were idolaters themselves. And God called him out of that world, that life, that he might follow the true God. The same thing that Joshua is compelling the people here to do. 
That they might follow the true God like their father Abraham followed the true God. That he dismissed the idolatry of the world and he determined to follow the covenant-making God of heaven. The God that made this covenant right here at Shechem. This is the issue of the entire chapter. Choose, Abraham. You will either follow me and I will bless you and make you a great nation and in your seed all the nations of the world will be blessed That seed, of course, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, the righteous, through him, then therefore we are his inheritance. We are the product of his labor, his work. And Abraham chose to follow the God of heaven. Who's speaking in this passage? Well, duh. Joshua is preaching. But as I've already highlighted and got ahead of myself, the words of here in, in this early section of the chapter gives us pretty much the idea that God himself just started talking. Just through the use of the pronouns. Now, we don't know, of course, if that's the case. It probably isn't the case. It, it is probably the voice of Joshua that is speaking here, but it's hard to tell. But one thing we do learn from this is that this is what every sermon should look like. How many times have I reminded you, even told you, that that preaching is the living voice of Christ? Preaching itself is the very word of God. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, as our catechisms teach us very clearly. No, it's not infallible in that sense. No, it's not inspired in that sense. I didn't get a divine revelation in my study. I mean, I wish it happened that way. It would certainly save me a bunch of time. Every week, if God would just tell me what to write down and I would just say it, it's not the case. But it doesn't change the fact that every sermon should be the voice of God to his people. In other words, my opinions don't really matter. What matters is God's opinion, as it were. What matters is what God says. What matters is what he has written. What matters to the people is that the word of God is given to the people. And that's what happens here. In a divinely inspired way, unique, God speaks plainly to his covenant people. And what does he tell them? Well, he gives them a review. A review that is important, is necessary. We need it. They needed it. A history of which they know, they've passed down to their children, they have spoken about around the campfire as they were making s'mores, Um, you know, all of it. A review. He's preaching, Joshua, to the people of old. He sets forth, at least in the words of one commentator, the way he uh, has structured this, and it's very helpful, I think, three stages of their history. It's a little hard to see if you're not really looking. And again, I'm thankful for guys that are a whole lot smarter than me that point these things out. And then I look at the text and go, oh, you know what? They're right. Well, that's good. How come I didn't see that? Well, that's because they get paid the big bucks to write commentaries, and I don't. Helpful. Three stages of their history that he highlights for them by way of review as they seek, as Joshua seeks to compel them to serve the God of heaven and not the idols of the world. 
as he presses the question to them over and over again, who will you serve? What are those three stages? Just very quickly. First, you have the stage of Abraham's call to the Exodus. That is to say, from Genesis chapter 12 all the way up through Exodus 12. We have that in verses 2 through 7. I'm not going to read it again. You can go back and look at it later. But in a sense, this is a summary of the call of Abraham all the way to the stage of the Exodus. But note, Abraham and his family served other gods. A key issue and term in this chapter. Again, who will you serve is being pressed. Will you serve the idols of the world? Or will you serve the God of Abraham? God intervenes, of course, with Abraham, who lived in the land of idolatry, calls him out of darkness, gives him faith, gives him a son, etc., etc. We know the story of Abraham. But it's our story, too. It's your story. No, you didn't live in in, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. You probably don't even know where it is. But it's still your story. God had you in mind when he called Abraham from this place of idolatry. Because through him, the seed of the the woman, the Messiah himself, would come and rescue you. He called you, as it were. What did he call you from? From the land of darkness? From a nation nation that was ensnared in idolatry? From a life of serving the Mimi God? To serve the one true God? What is it you think he redeemed you to? I know we like to say, well, he saved me from the pit of hell. Well, that's true. He saved you from destruction. But he also saved you to serving him. Is that not what he did for Abraham? He rescued him from a land of misery. Much like he did, will later, 400, some odd, many, many years later, much like he will do with the people of old in Egypt, he will rescue them from a land of misery and place them firmly within the land of promise. This is what he did for you. As you reflect upon your, the stages of your life and you see the faithfulness of God, you first begin, don't you, with the calling upon your life in which the Lord Jesus Christ called you out of darkness into light and the Spirit of God overwhelmed your own dispositions and will and you trusted Him. You think that was your doing? It was His. God determined to place His favor upon you. Why? Because you're so wonderful? I mean, I think you're wonderful, but... I'm not God. As human beings go, you're wonderful. But you're not as holy as God. You could never do what God demands. But he's still determined to save you anyway. That's the first stage. The second stage is given to us in Israel's time in the wilderness, verses 8 through 10. There we see, in summary fashion, a protection of God as highlighted for us. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you. Not exactly the most comforting things to think about. Who wants to be in war? Well, that's what happened to the people. These pagans, these, these, these God-hating people who hated God's people, they fought with the people of God. 
They fought with you. And notice, and I, again, Yahweh speaking, not Joshua. I, not Joshua, gave them into your hands. The second stage of battle and war and and protection and guidance and direction. Again, is that not as a child of God which you experience and joy every single day, whether you know it or not, whether you're conscious of it or not? I know you think that you got here this evening because you're such a good driver. And the jury's probably out on some of you. I've ridden with, I've been in the car with some of you. No, you got here because of God's good pleasure, period. I know you think it was because you're such, you, know, you studied so well the driver's manual. and No, sure, that's helpful, but you got here because of God's good pleasure, period, end of story. Tonight, when you go home and you make it to your living room, if God wills, you didn't get there because you're a great driver. You got there because of God's good pleasure. He's watching over you every moment of every day. His eye is always upon you. He is guiding. He's directing you. And all he says to you is, would you just trust me? I know where I'm going. You don't. But I guarantee you where I'm going is good. And you just, and you'll like it. So just trust me. Isn't that what the son of David tells us to do? To trust him with all of our hearts? Come what may, the opposition of the world, the difficulties of our culture, the circumstances that face us every single moment of every single day, the sin that's all around us, the things that make us groan and give us grief and cause us to mourn, all of it, yet God is watching over his people. That's what he did. Even when they acted like a bunch of idiots, when they grumbled and complained and, 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 and in that horrible event of Exodus 32, all of it, God was mindful of his covenant, his faithfulness, and, well, he continued to protect them. The third stage is the people's experience on the land of promise. It's highlighted by the sermon in verses 11 through 13. A conquering of, God's, a conquering of God over the enemies of his people. Again, how far do I have to stretch? I don't think I have to go very far if we're going to be biblical and theological about this. And what it, does it matter to the church here in the 21st century? Well, what is this teaching us? Well, this God who has called me, placed his eternal love upon me, not because of anything in me, who's watching over me, who's protecting me every moment of my day, is going to guarantee my arrival in that heavenly rest that the promised land is a picture And that's your end. It's not maybe. You might think we'll never get there. It's like we're going around our elbow to get to our butt. But, you know, you're going to get there. God knows where he's taking us. And that promise is ours and it's out there in front of him. Just as he promised Abraham all the way back, long before any of these people were even a twinkle in their daddy's eye, he said to them, They will be enslaved for 400 years, but I will bring them out by a mighty hand. I will save them. I will redeem them. I will protect them, and I will bring them to this land. What land? The land they're standing on in which Joshua is preaching this sermon. The land there near Shechem 
All of it comes full circle. The entire Christian experience is summed up in this brief review to the people. It's really tremendous, isn't it? We need to learn how to read our Bibles. Because this is a story. It's your story. It's mine. As such, then, therefore, there are things to learn. One commentator gives to us two very useful lessons as we transition now to the response, a a renewal that here, this faithful God who has been faithful to me, undeserving as it has been for my entirety of my life, I, I must respond to him rightly. I must choose. I must choose to serve him. Two helpful lessons. First, covenant history is the story of God's sovereign grace. I mentioned this. From Abraham, Abraham from Ur, the Chaldeans, Isaac over Ishmael, as mentioned in the sermon, Jacob over Esau, the seed of the woman continues to triumph over the seed of the serpent that Jesus Christ might arrive on the scene, that he who would come in the fullness of time would rescue me from my misery, my sin, and give me hope for all of my days. Second, not only is covenant history the story of God's sovereign grace, covenant history is the story of God's saving grace. These are quotes right out of the commentator. I wish I was this smart. Covenant history is the story not only of God's sovereign grace, but it is the story of God's saving grace. Note the first-person verbs given to us in verses 3, 4, and 5. Then I took your father, Abraham, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. Verse 5, and I sent Moses and Aaron. Wow, you know, talk about human will, human ability. It's all gone. There is none. This is God's work a work he freely entered into to save a miserable people. You know, a people that he said it wasn't because you were all that wonderful. It wasn't because you were all that large. It wasn't because you were all that attractive. Uh, It was because of me, not you. You're my treasure possession. Why? Because of me, not you. You are the apple of my eye. Why? Because of me, not you. You are uh, my chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Why? Not because of you, because of me. That's us. We are who we are today. Rescued by Christ. What? Because of Him. Not because of you. Not because of me. Covenant history is the story of God's sovereign grace. It's the story of God's saving grace. He has saved these people. This is the sermon. It's the gospel. I'm still tempted to make that comment. One of my elders is cringing right about now. He probably knows what I'm thinking in my head. I'm not going to make it. This is the gospel. Here it is in Joshua 24. It's the gospel of Christ given to us. There it is in the Old Testament. Wow. Yep, there it is right here. God's sovereign grace, God's saving grace. It's all there. Well, because of it, it requires a response. And you are going to respond to this this evening. You might think, as you get in your car and drive home, according to your great skills behind the wheel, that you're not making any choices. That's a choice. You will choose something this evening. You will choose to respond to the God who has 
savingly, by his own sovereign goodwill, saved you and has continued to guide and direct you all of your days, or you will choose not to serve him. You can't have it both ways. Something I'll show you here in just a minute. First, in verses 14 through 28, we have what is, in my outline anyway, covenant renewal. Note in verse 14, that word. Every preacher loves it when this word shows up because then they get to say that, which everybody knows I'm going to say. (coughs) Now, therefore... Well, I should look and see what it the therefore is uh, therefore. What is the connection? The connection is everything I've just said. Everything Jehovah himself has preached through the voice of Joshua in the first 13 verses of the chapter. If this is all true of you, <coughs> then you have a response. You are obligated to respond. You can't get it. You can leave now. Run out the back door before, you don't have to hear it. It doesn't change the fact that you're still obligated to respond. They must respond. They are a captive audience. Hanging on every word. Now, therefore, he says, there's a call that Joshua makes. It makes a call of commitment to the people. Either serve the true God of your history or serve idols. It's one or the other. Back in those days, idols were obvious, right? They were tangible, things that they could, you could wrap your hands around. Remember the story of Rachel in her tent, and here comes her daddy. Because Jacob fled and took his daughters. And unbeknownst to Jacob, of course, there was the idols of Laban's house in the tent with Rachel. And what does she do to fake out her father, well, you know, it's like the way of women with me, so I can't get up. But she's sitting on them. In those days, idols were tangible items. They could, you could see them, grab them, look at them. We may not have those things today in that way. But as Calvin says, every one of you, you are idol factories. We just, human nature, we just crank them out. One after the other after the other. It might be football. Oh, did the football season start today? It might be football, sports in general, can turn into an idol, an all-consuming thing that turns your heart away from the God of heaven. It could be your technology. Guilty. Maybe it's your books. Touching all my sacred cows here. Whatever it may be, whatever thing that turns your heart away from the living and true God is an idol in your life and it needs to go away. Either it will rule you or you will rule it. And usually it rules us. And so Joshua says, look, you've got to make a choice. Look at what God has done for you. Why would you not serve this God And he models for them the right decision. Look at verse 15. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Can you imagine saying that in a sermon? I just did. I read it. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the God of heaven? Who would say that? Joshua said it. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then fine, don't. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
But if you're going to do it, do it with all of your might. In other words, if you're going to sin, people of God, sin boldly. Don't just play around with it. Don't play, don't play footsie with it. None of this lukewarm nonsense that happens in the church. Don't mess around with it. Jump in with all your might and serve the idols. Knock yourself out. You might as well enjoy it because you're going to die a hopeless eternity. If it's evil to serve the God of heaven, then sin boldly. But Joshua, by example, tells them what they should do. What does he say? Well, that's that verse. Everybody knows this verse. It's on the walls of many homes. But as free me and my house, we, we will serve the Lord. There's imperatives, of course, in verse 14 as he appeals to the people as the words of their history is echoing still in their brain. He gives two imperatives here in verse 14. I think it's two. Actually, it's three. First, he tells them to fear the Lord. The response to, from us as the ones who have been sovereignly saved and rescued and guided and have His guidance and protection is that we might fear the God of heaven. There's no fear of God in the world. I don't think I'm going out on a limb. They don't fear the God of heaven. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I think I read that somewhere. There ought to be for God's people. This is not afraid, cowering in the corner. It's a reverence. It's an awe of him who has done this great work for undeserving people. I grow weary of Christians, especially, who trifle with the name of God. I grow weary when I do it. Physician, heal thyself, I suspect. Too often I see people refer to the God of heaven as their buddy. He's not your peer. He is the thrice holy God who has saved you. We approach him, and we must approach him with reverential fear. Too many churches today display a casual approach to God in their worship. That is not how man comes to him. And each time someone flippantly approached the God of heaven, well, things didn't go well. They died. Think of Leviticus 10 and those two sons of Aaron, who ought to know better. We're taught different. They didn't take his worship very seriously, did they? They didn't fear the Lord. And as a result, well, they didn't live long. They never left the tabernacle that day, not alive anyway. We must fear the God of heaven. To fear him is to hear him and to obey him and to recognize that he knows your life better than you do. He knows your frame. He knows all of your weaknesses. He knows what's going to trip you up and what won't. He's given you his word that you might, uh, might read it and know it and understand it. He's given you the preaching of it. He's given you all of these things. Why? Because he knows your frame. He knows you're but dust. He knows that you're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead the God I love. We must fear him. Every time we disobey him, it's a statement that says, I don't fear you. I'm not worried. You're not going to strike me dead. We must fear the God of heaven. Jacob, or Joshua appeals to them to fear the Lord. He says to serve him. 
Again, an imperative, serve him, fear him, serve him. What does that even look like? Well, I think it's simple. To just obey that which he has said. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You want to serve the God of heaven, obey what he's told you. He'll bless you. He will reward you even. What? You're reformed. Yes, he'll reward you. It's true. It's not. Go read chapter 16 of the confession. Third, and of course, much to the point of the chapter, put away the foreign idols, serve and worship him only. No mixture, no compromise, no other idols. Let me see if I can apply this. What is today? Pretty sure it's in the Word. Pretty sure it's still part of the Decalogue, still in the Bible. It's still part and parcel of our Christian experience. We are called and commanded to honor the Lord's Day. And this command, unlike all the others, has a funny way of showing us our idols. Why is it we clamor for those things that really won't satisfy in the end, like football or movies on the Lord's Day, and things that take us away from those things that we ought to be devoting to Him? This is the one day that He has called His people to worship Him publicly and privately. Do we use it? Do you use it for the means of the day? Or... Do you have those idols, those things? Do you justify away the simple command to honor him on the Lord's day? And so he gives these three commands, which require a response. There's really five different categories here. I'm going to go through these very, very quickly, because I killed you this morning in a lengthy sermon, probably a new record, I grant you. But, uh, well, I'm not going to apologize either for it. So I'm going to speedily go through these. One commentator is very helpful, which will get us through this quite quickly. First, a response. There must be a determination from the people, and there is, verses 16 through 18. Just like them, we too must be determined in our response. Choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the Lord? Fine. Good. Good choice. Life's about choices. The people are determined. Look at what they say. Then the people answered... Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Good answer. Pass the theology exam. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great, great signs in our sight and preserved us all in the way we went and among all the peoples to whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites. They were listening to the sermon. You notice? They're just re- regurgitating what Joshua had just said. There's a determination of the people. We will fear the Lord and we will serve him. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, it almost seems, and I'm not sure I would have done this, but Joshua does, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, moved by him, there's a shocking retort by Joshua. You ever wondered about this? Why why does Joshua say this? Look, Look at what he says to him. But Joshua said to the people, verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord. He just told me to serve the Lord. What are you talking about? He is holy. Okay? I got that too. But what is he talking about? What is the point? What do you mean you are not able? Why does he say that? 
Well, again, helpful uh, geniuses in the history of the church, because I often have wondered this. Maybe you have. And I'm not sure I'm going to satisfy your curiosity, but let's see if it does help a little bit. Joshua, quoting now, Joshua is stressing the serious nature of this commitment. It's a literary tool. In order to highlight just how serious this is in the life of the people, God is holy. He must be worshipped correctly. He must be served as he demands. If you commit to that, you better do it. He will not trifle with idolatry. It also, in some sense, strips away the whole human ability and ingenuity that we often want to bring to the equation without dependence upon the Spirit of God to do it. We ought not divorce the Spirit from our Christian experience. This is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is not try harder. This is dependence on the Spirit. You can't do this. But the Spirit of God in you can. But as I mentioned, it's a literary device. I remember when I was younger, each time I was told I was not able to do something, it made me more determined to do it. Don't tell me I can't do something. What do you mean I can't do something? I'm going to do it now just to prove you wrong. Maybe that's the idea. Don't know. But I do know this. You can't do it at all. Only the spirit dwelling in you is able, will enable you, will give you the grace to do it. The question is, do you want that grace? Do you want the Spirit of God to equip you and help you through it? Because, third, there are serious implications if you don't. If you fail, if they fail, verse 20, if they fail to worship the Lord as they have vowed, and if they turn to other gods, he will do three things. They're all pretty serious. Sobering even. Notice verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. What? Uh Uh-huh. Now you have a benefit of knowing their history. Is that not what happened? Did they not give themselves over to idolatry? Did they not violate their promise that they made right here at Shechem? Yes, they did. It wasn't all that long after this that they do it. Prone to wander, those people. He will turn against them. He will do them harm. He will exterminate them. And he did. But he maintained his covenant promise to a remnant faithful to him. Just as he did in the wilderness prior to the spies entering into the land. And those 12 12 men go in there. Ten of them come back. Oh, what a miserable disaster. We're doomed. Bunch of, oh, forgot the word. Gloomy gusses. Doesn't even begin to touch it. But who, what happened to them, 10 people, and all of their families, and all of their children, uh, and all all that was related to them, minus their children? Uh, Doom! They were exterminated! What about Joshua and Caleb, though? Hello, faithful. They feared the Lord. They were going to serve him. They trusted him. All the things that he's saying right here, this is the perfect guy to preach this sermon. He knows what this is all about. Serve the Lord. He's been there. He's preaching out of his own experience. He warns them, if you don't, this happened before. It'll happen again. 
He will turn against you. He will do you harm. He will exterminate them. And that is precisely what happens to both tribes, both uh, kingdoms of Israel, minus a remnant of people, because they did what? They turned to that primary sin of the Old Testament, the sin of idolatry. By the way, you know what the other sin was that caused God to judge them? The second most important, the second one, they profaned his Sabbath. Now you look at the state of the church, in this country especially, and you ask yourself, why is the church so anemic in our culture? I'll tell you why. Idolatry in the church and a profaning of the Lord's day. God is not going to be trifled with. He continues to compel his people, and they continue to refuse to listen. And so he puts this process, this issue to the test. He actually gives them a fear tactic and tells them, this is the God you're messing with. He's holy. Don't play games with him. And so there are serious implications to their decision, but the people insist. They insist. Good. This is a good thing. They restate their commitment in verse 21. People said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. They chose wisely. I won't use the illustration from Indiana Jones, okay? I'm staying away from it. They chose wisely. Is that your choice tonight? Look at all that God has done for you. None of it you deserved. You didn't deserve any of it. Not a single thing. The oxygen you're breathing right now, this night, you don't deserve. He's given it to you. It came from him. Serve the Lord. And so they seal the oath, this promise, this covenant promise in verses 22 through 27. It's there given. I'm not going to take the time to look at it. You can read it for yourself. This is how the book ends. The last words that the people hear are really the words that every, all the people of God must hear and must remember. The God who saved you calls you to serve him. The God who saved you calls you to honor him. The God who saved you calls you to worship him. The God who saved you calls you to these things. Is it really too much to ask for him to demand that we fear and honor and reverence the God of heaven. Is it too much to ask of you? Look what he's given you. Look what he provides for you. Look what he's promised you. Is it too much to ask that we, like these people, respond, no, we are going to serve the Lord. This house will serve the Lord. I will serve the Lord. I will get rid of the idols of my life. I will not trifle with this. This is too important. I'm going to serve the God who's loved me and saved me, rescued me from the misery of my own life in a hopeless eternity. Is it too much to ask, brothers and sisters, is it too much to ask that we serve this God, the true God who has saved you? Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us, that we might choose wisely this night that as for me and my house, we might serve the Lord. We know we cannot do this. We must have your spirit to do any of these things. And so we appeal to you again 
that you, a good Father, will grant to us the Spirit that we would do all that you have commanded us. May we do it out of a heart of love for all you have done for us. May it cause us to walk with you. Help us to trust you, to honor you, to fear you. All of our days, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.